So we are in Matthew chapter 6. We are in verse 10 today. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to start off today covering this idea of what is the kingdom that he is talking about. Uh, so the word kingdom in this context really has to do uh, with this idea of kingship. Uh, and in the ancient world, the idea of kingdom isn't necessarily physical land or territory. Right? It is the idea of the place where the king is acknowledged as the king. So it can be in somebody's house in another country. That can be part of the kingdom if those people acknowledge that the king is who rules over them. And so when God's talking to his people about this kingdom, they would get this idea that wherever they go, regardless of if Israel's conquered or they're kicked out, they bring the kingdom with them wherever they go. And God specifically calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, right? This idea that they would be an example to the nations to make his name famous. Uh, so when people saw the way that the Israelites lived, they would acknowledge him as king. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So one of the ways they did this is that the ancient Jews would wear a cord or a tassel on the corners of their cloaks. It would have a white string and a blue string, like in this picture here. Uh, and it was meant to represent that they are these, this kingdom of priests. You could recognize who was a part of this. The blue cord was supposed to signify being in the world, being this example to the rest of the world. And the white cord represented purity, that they, even though they were in the world, they would act separate from the ways of the world. And the emphasis on these two cords changed throughout Israel's history. Right? Sometimes they would be all about being in the world and telling people and being good examples. And then other times they would look very inwardly. And at the time of Jesus, they're really focused inwardly. If you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we're separating from Roman culture. We don't want anything to do with them. We're just focusing on our own purity and our own ways of living. But really, it's about that balance between the two. And on a separate historical note, those colors look familiar. It's because the current Israel flag has blue and white as their flag colors for that reason. So what we have to think about is these two chords. As we claim to be God's people, what kingdom are you acknowledging when people recognize you as a loyal subject by the way you live? If we are to bring the kingdom people look at us and acknowledge who the king is by the way we're living, would people be able to do that? And so, as we get into this, that's what we want to think about, and specifically what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word kingdom in his teaching. Uh, and it really has to do with this duality of a kingdom of darkness versus a kingdom of light. So we're going to look at a couple stories in the book of Matthew to kind of highlight this idea. Um, it's going to seem like we're going on a bit of a bunny trail, but it'll wrap back around to this point that we're going to try to get to. And the point is, is that Jesus conquers the kingdom of darkness. Okay, so keep that in the back of your head. That's what we're getting to. We're going to come back around to this idea that Jesus is conquering the kingdom of darkness. This new kingdom he's bringing is a kingdom of light. Okay, so we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. And it's up there for you to follow up. So, now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the rain and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew, the writer, is setting up this idea that in the areas Jesus is going to, there are people dwelling in darkness, but when Jesus comes, they have seen a great light, right? Um, and Jesus, when he goes to these places, his main message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of darkness that you're living in is one way of living, and it's going to lead to death. But he says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, repentance is part of that. Okay? So setting that up, there's those differences. Then we are going to, there's a couple other examples where they're going to be talking about these different kingdoms. We're going to jump to Matthew 12 now, verses 22 to 28. Okay? Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. Jesus heals him, so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus heals a man, and the Pharisees see it, but they say that it's only can be done because of this kingdom of darkness. Right? That's this, what they're associating the supernatural power with. And Jesus is going to say something different. So it continues in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you cast your, your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus notes that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Right? If he's casting out demons by the kingdom of darkness, that would destroy the kingdom of darkness. Right. So it must be that he is part of this other kingdom, this kingdom of light. Right? And then he ends this part in verse 28 where he says, The kingdom of God has come upon you. Like he is claiming this is where he is coming from, this other kingdom. So I want to look deeper into these two kingdoms, what people are thinking about when they hear these ideas of a kingdom of darkness versus a kingdom of light. Okay, so we're going to start with this kingdom of darkness. The idea of this kingdom of darkness, what most people at this time would have thought about, and really most people in the ancient world, is that it is associated with large bodies of water. Right? We might associate it with sound systems or something. But uh, <laughs> they associate it with large bodies of water. Uh, so, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then what does it say next? The Spirit of God was hovering over the water, right? He's going to bring order out of this darkness, which is pictured as this large body of water. In Psalm 69, uh, the psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Right? There's at least references that deep water is terrifying, right? Even though these people were often fishermen, they did not know how to swim. And so it meant death, and they didn't want to know how to swim, because if you're in the water, you're going to the place of darkness where this kingdom of evil lives. Often these bodies of water are also used 
as a form of punishment. If we think about Noah and the flood, right, a huge body of water wipes out the earth. Or the Egyptians, the Red Sea covers them over as a picture of punishment. There's also curses regarding these big bodies of water. Right? When Jesus casts out demons, uh, previously in Matthew, uh, out of the demon-possessed man legion, these, pi- these uh, demons go into the pigs, and then where do the pigs go? Into the sea, right? returning to the depths of darkness, more or less. Uh, there's another line where Jesus is talking about little children. He says, those that offend these little children be better than a millstone was attached around their neck, and they were thrown into the sea. Right? This picture of this is where darkness dwells. What Jesus is going to say is, that kingdom, I have power over that kingdom. Remember our beginning line? Jesus conquers the kingdom of darkness. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide into two groups. So we're going to basically do like the first two rows is one group. Second two rows uh, is the second group. And we're going to each look at a story that has to do with a body of water, how Jesus conquers that body of water. Okay. And what I want us to look at is especially the last line of the section that we're going to uh, read over. And what I want you to see is the reaction of the disciples to that moment uh, in the story. Okay? So you can go to the... There you go. Perfect. All right. So the first two rows, you guys are going to read Mark 4, 35 to 41, and read it together. These, these two rows. Two rows where people are. Two. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the second two rows, you guys are going to read this story in Matthew 14, 22 to 33. You're going to read it together. You can read quietly or read it out loud. And then discuss this question of why the disciples reacted this way specifically to the miracle you see. Okay? So, at this point, they have seen Jesus do some incredible things, right? He's healed the blind. He's healed the sick. He cast out the demons out of legion and sent them to the pigs. Why is it that then that's when they say... Truly, he is the Son of God. How, why is it that that is the moment they get it all of a sudden? Right? And I think it has to do with the context of where they are and what they are seeing. Jesus is walking on the symbol of the kingdom of darkness and literally stepping on it and saying, you don't control me. Right? The winds are coming, the storms are coming, and Jesus says, be still, and they listen to him. Right? So this is mind-blowing for the disciples. And even more so is that these guys know their Bible. They know their Old Testament scriptures. And so when they hear this, things would start to come to their head. Okay, So, for example, in Psalm 107, verses 23 to 29, right? this is uh, the psalmist talking, and he's talking about God, different characteristics of God, and this is what it says. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heavens. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted into their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Does that not look like that exact story with Peter? Right there, right? And then in Job uh, chapter 9, verse 8, talking about God again who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Right? It's right there. They get it. They see, finally, he is the Son of God. His kingdom has come. Right? This kingdom of darkness has been conquered. 
So, we see this picture of the kingdom of darkness as a body of water. Let's look at the opposite. What is this kingdom of light that Jesus says has come? Right? So yesterday, we went and saw Lion King, which was great. It was just pure nostalgia. Um, and there's this moment where Mufasa's showing some of the kingdom, right? And he says, everything the light touches is yours. What's interesting about that line is if you kind of think about it, eventually, the light's going to touch everything, right? I mean, the sun moves. Uh, and so all of this is part of this kingdom eventually. And that's kind of what we see with the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, right? It's all his but it's going to look different depending on where you are. And Jesus says this kingdom is not going to look like the world. It's going to have very different values. In John chapter 18, verse 36 to 37, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king for the purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is right at the crucifixion. He's talking to Pilate about this kingdom that he is coming to bring. And it's going to be very different from the way the world works. We talked about this in our last series, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. This upside-down kingdom is very different. Blessed are those who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are meek, merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart, and persecuted. The opposite of what the world values, right? And so what we have to think about, too, is what is our expectation of the kingdom? What is it that we want or that we think we want when we hope Jesus is coming? Is it comfort? Is it wealth? Uh, Is it, uh, you know, to be in power? What are the things that we're looking for versus what Jesus really says is coming when he brings his kingdom? So ultimately, what should our response be? I think there are two things we see from this command of king, your kingdom come. So ultimately, it is in a command form when we look at the, the uh, grammar here, right? Bring your kingdom, your kingdom come. The first thing is we have to acknowledge that he is a king and not necessarily like a democratically elected leader, right? He has control over everything. And so we acknowledge that he is the king in that moment. Right? And Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So part of acknowledging that he is king is that our kingdom has to go for his kingdom can come. Right? We have to give up the things that we are holding on to that we want Jesus to be and embrace who he says he is and what he is bringing. And so then the next step of that is to repent. Right? When we pray, we must confess so we don't let our kingdom get in the way of his kingdom. We must acknowledge that he is the king. And James 5, chapter 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Right? This is part of the process of prayer. The genius of the Lord's prayer is that it leads us to this naturally. Right? First, We have to recognize that he is our father. He is intimate. We have access to him. Because we have that access, we also should recognize that he is in heaven, that he is all-powerful, and so he has the ability to help us. And that should lead us to worship. Holy is your name. And then the next part is to repent and say, it is not about me. It is about you. Your kingdom come. 
And so then the, the next part that Russell's going to talk about is the submission piece of that. Once we have confessed, we need to submit to his will. Your will be done, not my own. So we're going to take a couple of minutes and process this and think about uh, our part in this. Um, so uh, we're going to play a, a song uh, and just for a couple minutes pray or journal about what's getting in the way of you being a loyal subject of Jesus' kingdom. This is the place where we are going to confess to the Lord those things that we have put up as higher than he is. So take a couple minutes, journal, think through this question. All right, well, I, um, I can't tell you how much I enjoy just being able to sit and participate and hear and be fed. And so thank you, Ross, for, for that. Um, it was so encouraging to sit back there. I was just like, I wonder if I keep sitting here, Frost would just keep teaching, and I can just kind of keep taking notes. It's good. <laughs> um, so I think I think what we where we come to in, in Jesus is teaching us how to pray is okay. So we acknowledge that the kingdom is His. It's it's His. It's the kingdom of light. How do I bring my will into submission to that? How do I now acknowledge that? What does that look like in my life. And I think these two thoughts uh, are intrinsically tied together as Jesus puts that your kingdom come, your will be done, right? And that's why we wanted to teach this together um, because there's there's so much overlap and overflow. In fact, uh, I heard one guy say that, and I think this is, this is brilliant. He said, kingdom allegiance will naturally flow out of a genuine and complete submission to the will of God. The only way that we're going to live as kingdom citizens, those that are belong to this kingdom of God, these citizens of heaven, these, these, these individuals who are a part of this upside-down kingdom, what we talked about for eight weeks of how do we live so contrary to this world, the only way that happens, the only way we can do that is by complete submission of our will to God's will. And that's what, and that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. The emphasis here is not so much on the kingdom or even the will part, but it's about whose kingdom and whose will it is, right? It's that I'm submitting my will to God's will, right? Because Jesus knew, right? Jesus, Jesus knew. He came and walked this earth. He knew that human beings, we struggle with this, right? We all, we struggle with, with turning over what we really want. Ross talked a minute ago about our comforts and those things that, that we enjoy so much in this life, right? The hardest battle for most of us is, is giving up those things that we really want. And so in order to do that, in order to, to, to give our allegiance fully to the king and be fully uh, part of this kingdom, it's going to flow out of a very, very genuine and a very complete submission to God's will over my will, right? So we're going to look, uh, we're going to look at this idea of submission. That's really this, this, the, the big idea of what Jesus is, is teaching them, right? And he's really saying this idea is, is that it's God's will over my will, or I want God's way in my life more than I want my way, right? It's, it's that mindset. Um, no matter what it is, I want to have what God wants for me more than necessarily what I always want for myself, and so how do we get there? How do we get to this place? Because it doesn't happen naturally, right? Like naturally, every single time, we just want what we want, right? And we always want what seems best for us in the moment, what's comfortable, what's easy, uh, what will lift us up, what will make us happy, what will make us feel uh, fulfilled in life, right? Those are the things that we want. So how do we submit that will to God? Uh, and so as we look at submission and what Jesus is teaching his disciples, I just have three really simple observations about submission, and then we're going to be done for today. Uh, first of all, first and foremost, uh, is submission is our proof of worship. 
is our proof of worship. In, in, in Ross's introduction, um, he said that last week we talked about uh, how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, right? And when we can understand that God is both intimate and close, but yet also this God of the universe, when we can understand that God is both of those, our response is worship, is worship, right? And I think submission, right? And I think Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, Jesus is like a master at putting thoughts and ideas together and how they all flow together, right? And so Jesus, I think what he's saying is that this idea of submission, right? God's will over my will, that, that, that submission becomes the proof of our genuine worship to God. And what I mean by that is this, right? It's really easy for us, especially in, in, in circles like this, in, in gatherings like this around other believers in Christian places. It's really easy for us to say, you know what? God is awesome. He is my intimate, loving Father. He loves me. He cares about me. He wants what's best for me. It's really easy for me to say that. It's also easy for me to say, you know what? He is God in heaven. And so he is powerful. There's nothing. Amen, hallelujah, praise Jesus, kingdom glory coming, right? It's so easy for us in these gatherings to say that. To say that, God, there's nothing outside of God's control. But what happens the moment when we're alone, right? And it gets real personal. And God calls us to do something we don't want to do. Does he still have my best interest at heart, right? What about when things don't go my way? And I'm praying for something and it's like it's not happening the way I want it to happen. Is he still in control of everything, right? When it seems like my life is still spinning out of control and I, I have no idea what's going on, it's... God still love me? Does he still care about me? And I think the proof of our genuine worship to God is submitting and understanding that it's his will, not my will. It's understanding that God truly understands and knows me better than I know myself. And so submission to that is the proof, right? When we say, you know what? I can set aside these things, these, these ambitions and these hopes and these things that, that I think God's going to do, and I'm, I'm going to trust him more than I trust myself. Submission is a proof of worship. And I think that's all tied back to the idea of hallowed be your name. Ross talked last week about what that meant, right? Holy and set apart is your name. God is holy and set apart, right? And so if he is holy and set apart, the way that we show him that is through our submission. Is that we submission becomes the proof that we believe that he is good and that he's in control, right? And so submission is our proof of worship. And it's really what God wants, right? God, God wants that from his people. He wants us to worship him in that way. God doesn't just want us to say that we love him and that we worship him and that we'll follow him, but he wants us to actually do it. I really believe that when the Bible says that we should follow God, I think it means that we should really follow God, right? It's not just hyperbole. It's not just empty words, but God really wants his people to follow him and to trust him. And so when we submit our will, the things that we desire and those things that we hope for and, and even expect, whether that's comfort, um, whether that's whatever that is, when we can say, you know what, I, yes, I want these in my life, but yet I want God's plan and will for my life more than I want that. I think that's when God is truly, truly worshipped. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, I've, I've seen this play out too many times uh, in people's lives. As, as I was thinking back through this, you know, I've had friends in my life that have said, you know what, I love Jesus and I love God and I'm going to follow him no matter what, right? But then when something came in their life that they wanted more than that, right? This idea of God knows best for my life got thrown out the window, right? Because it didn't line up with what they wanted. 
And I've had, unfortunately, too many friends in my life um, that I've... Is he here again? He, he is he's just coming on out. <laughs> there's, been, there's been too many people in my life, though, that I've seen that have said, you know what, I want to serve God. I want to do what God wants me to do more than anything else. But yet when it came to that moment of actually trusting him over what they wanted... They went, they went toward themselves every single time, right? And that breaks the heart of God. That breaks the heart of God. God wants us. Many, many people walk away because they don't want to submit to God's will. I've had conversations with so many people that said, you know what? I, you know, I hear everything in the Bible, and, and you know, I, I got some questions. And so you walk through them, the questions with people, right? And they have this question and that question. The thing that I've come to learn is that you can answer everybody's question. You can have an answer to every single question they have about God and about faith and everything else. But for so many people, at the end of the day, they're not willing to submit their lives to God. And that's kind of where, where the, the line is drawn. And so submission becomes that proof of our worship, right? Christian, do we love God? Are we willing to lay aside what we want? And this is practical in every area of our life, right? This is practical in the area of marriage, right? Like, like what, what do we do, Christian, when we're in that marriage and you know what? We want out because it's not living up to an expectation. Are we going to believe what God says in his word about marriage and why we should, we should continue in and continue on in marriage? Are we going to choose what we want? What about for the single person who is, who's dating? And, you know, you're in that dating relationship and you're having that moment, right? And, and you know what God says about your life and, and the purity that he wants for your life. But yet, am I going to choose what I want over what God has for me? I think this is, this is relevant in all areas of our life. God wants our heart. God wants, God wants to know that we are willing and, and are going to submit our lives to what he wants for us. It's reminded in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says this. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, right? Our God wants our heart, right? God's not satisfied with us just coming to church on Sunday morning and, and telling everybody, other Christians, about how great God is. God wants our heart 24-7, right? In that moment, in that dark place when we think nobody else is looking around, right? And we're doing those things that we know we're not honoring to God. God wants us in that moment just as much as he wants us on Sunday morning. God wants all of us because he wants our heart, right? He just doesn't want us to do things for him, but he wants our, our heart. And so when Jesus says for his, for his disciples to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's this acknowledgement of, you know what? I want you, I want what you want, God, more than what I want in my life, right? Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's hard, even if it goes against everything that, that I want in that moment, you know what, God, because of who you are, I want you more than myself. And so submission becomes that proof of genuine worship. But secondly, and this, I think this just ties in so, so beautifully with what Ross just kind of walked us through, is, is that Jesus becomes our ultimate example of submission, right? Gee, I love, man, I, I just, I'm, I, I love, I love him. I love Jesus so much. And, and what I love about him is that, that so many areas of our life where we struggle, Jesus came and gave us this, a perfect, beautiful example for how, how we can walk this out, how we can live this out in our life, right? And so Jesus comes as an example of submission to us. And, and, and I just want to point out just quickly two ways or two times in the life of Jesus that he uh, became an example of submission. First of all, was in that very first act of coming to earth, right? When Jesus came to earth, the incarnation, 
God, right? Emmanuel, God with man, in that Christmas moment that we celebrate, right? It was a picture of God leaving the glory of heaven, of Jesus leaving the glory of heaven, and everything that was owed to him, the worship that he had had from eternity to eternity, he walked out of that and stepped down into the darkness, right? He stepped down into the middle of our mess and chaos, right? And in so doing, in order to become our perfect sinless sacrifice, right, he had to put on humanity. He had to wrap himself in our flesh, right? And so part of that was laying aside, right, laying aside some of what he had, right, so that he could come down. It was, it was kind of this, this picture of, of him, of this sacrifice and this obedience, right? We all know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Right, and so part of the way that God made, well, the way that God made uh, atonement for us, the way that God made uh, us to be able to have a relationship, was by sending Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, was obedient to come down and to lay down His life. He submitted to the Father's will. Uh, Paul Paul picks up on this idea uh, as he is encouraging the believers in Philippians chapter two, verse five. He says, "Have this mind among you." which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, what, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Jesus, Jesus gives us the perfect example in his coming to this world, right, is that he, he emptied himself, right, so that he could take on our humanity, so that he could come and be our perfect, sinless sacrifice. But then ultimately we see the picture of Jesus submitting, right, and showing us how to submit to the Father's will in his dying, right, in his dying. Paul goes on in, in Philippians 2 verse 8, and he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? I mean, did you guys know? I, I'm sure you did. But were you aware? Like Jesus, that wasn't necessarily what Jesus wanted to do right? That wasn't the easy thing for Jesus to do, right? We have this moment, right? We get this picture, uh, this glimpse in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, right? Jesus is praying in the garden, right? Right before he goes to the cross, right? And what does he pray? He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, right? If there be any other way for me to come and bring your plan of rescue to the world other than what I'm about to go through, please, please let that happen. But I love the next, the next few words, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? In that moment, right, Jesus acknowledged, you know what? It's not about my comfort. It's not about, if I'm going to accomplish the plan of God, it's going to be about laying aside what I want, what's easy for me in this moment, for what the Father has decreed, what the Father has said, in order that we could have a relationship with him. So Jesus becomes our perfect example, right, of what it means. And so in our lives, right, so as, as we relate back to this, Right? As we relate back to this and think about the example Jesus was for us, right? when we're in those moments, do I trust, do I believe, do I know that the Father's will is more important than mine? Right? And I'm so grateful this morning that Jesus gave us that example. Right? That, that Jesus, I mean, just think about it for a minute. Right? I mean, Jesus could have chose not to do that, I guess. Right? Like He could have said, like, that, that's, that's not the, the way that I wanted to do this. And, and that would have turned out really badly for us, right? Like if Jesus had said, you know what? I, I, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to do it. It's, it's, you know what? And Jesus would have been perfectly righteous in making that decision because he didn't owe it to us, right? 
but it said that he became obedient, right? He, he realized that the Father's will, right? He became obedient in that moment. Not my will, but your will be done. And so what I want us to do, just for a couple minutes, um, I think this is really important for us to understand and, and, and as we come together, uh, just to circle back up in your groups you were in a minute ago um, and, and just discuss this question uh, or just this idea, right? Uh, I want you to discuss the importance of Jesus' obedience to God's will even over his maybe earthly desire, right? Even, even, over, even over him knowing that it was going to be a hard thing to do, that Jesus still was obedient uh, to God's will and to God's plan. So take just a couple minutes and discuss that, and then we're going to, I got one more kind of observation from this, and then we're going to wrap up for today. All right, we're going to come back together and kind of finish up this morning. Um, last, uh, last kind of observation about submission. Um, as, we, as we think about this, um, and really, really, this is just like, hopefully, really, really practical because I think that's where the, I think that's the struggle for us, right? I think for most of us sitting in here, we would acknowledge, like Ross said, that that God is King, right? That 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 because of what Jesus did, like God is King, and so we're part of His kingdom. And I think we would even acknowledge a lot of times and say, you know what? I want to submit my will to God's will, right? Your your will be done, God. Um, but it's in the practical, everyday living that out part that becomes the struggle, right? Um, and, and so I think um, one of the things we need to realize is that submission is really about giving up something less for something greater um, in our lives. And so when we, when we look at what does it mean, your will be done, right? Um, that implies ultimately not my will, but, but your will, right? What Jesus prayed. Um, and I think it's acknowledging that God's will for our life is greater than our will and our, our plan for our life. Um, God, I want, I want what you have for me more than what I have for myself, right? And so how do we get there, right? Because that's, that's a hard prayer to say, right? We really struggle with, with submission. Why is that? And I think it's because of control, right? I think if we were just like brutally honest this morning, we would, we would all admit that we probably are all a little bit of a control freak in our life, right? Anybody like, like there with me? Like I'll admit it. Um, right, we like we want control of every aspect of my our life. Right, I remember there was this uh, moment early on when when Nicole and I got married, and uh, we were living in Georgia, uh, and we had just I just moved into the house that she was she was living in, and so it was our house, and so it was the first time it was kind of like her stuff and our stuff coming together, you know. And I don't know if you you guys realize this or not, but when a when a husband and, and wife get married, you know, like they come from with very different perspectives on things and so like even just some of the small things like become like big issues and I remember there was one day uh, that we got into this like disagreement we'll call it that we got into this disagreement right um, about how to fold clothes um, and because I had a particular way that I wanted to fold clothes and she had another way which was kind of like I don't care as long as they're in a drawer somewhere like that's considered folded and I had a certain way that I wanted my shirts folded and so the, the, the outcome of that was hey if you want that much control of this then you can fold your own clothes and to which I said you know what I think your way is great um, we'll just shove them in a drawer right but, but, it, but it, it reminded me right even in something so small that like we want to control every aspect of our life and I think that's why we have such a hard time with submitting our will to God's will, right? Because ultimately, even when we pray, right? Because that's what we're talking about. Even in our prayers, we have a hard time saying, God, I'm going to pray for these things and I'm going to lift these things up to you because you are my loving father and because you want to hear from me because you want them. But at the end of the day, I'm going to trust you in that. 
I'm going to trust that it's your will over mine. And even if it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to turn out, I'm still going to trust you. And I want that more than what I'm actually asking for myself, right? We struggle with that because we're control freaks, right? We want to control every aspect of our life. Um, And so I think in the moment what we need to understand is that really this idea of submitting to God's will is about giving up something less for something greater, for us to acknowledge and to trust that God actually has the greater plan for our life, right? Even if we don't see it in that moment, even if we're struggling and it doesn't make sense in this moment, to understand that God has that bigger picture in our life. You know, there's, there's things in this life that we don't understand in the moment, right? We only understand them in the rearview mirror. You guys ever been there before? Like, like God takes you through something in your life and you have no idea why it's happening, right? And then as you look back in the rearview mirror, right, as you look back on that sometime later, you see what God was doing behind the scenes, right? Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that uh, the secret things belong to God, right? But, but that the revealed things belong to us. Um, the hidden things belong to God. There's a secret uh, nature about God's plan and, and the things that God does in our life sometimes that we don't understand in the moment, right? But what all this comes down to is do I trust that God understands my life and knows me and has the best for me over even what I want in that moment. All right? And so, so Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? And what, how does he finish that phrase? On earth that is, is in heaven, right? And so ultimately what we're doing is that we're praying that, you know what? That earth would become a picture of what God is already doing in heaven. Right? That's what we're hoping for and praying for. We're saying that, that God, bring your kingdom that's in heaven. God, bring your will that you're already uh, in control of in heaven and that you have legions of, of angels that are worshiping you day and night. Bring that to earth. We want that here. Right? We want your glory and your power and your majesty. I love how uh, one of the commentators, a guy named Robert Law, he said this. He said, prayer is a mighty instrument. Not forgetting man's will done in heaven, but forgetting God's will done on earth. I love that. I love that thought, right? It's Prayer is, is about getting God's will here, not about forcing God into something that we want him to do. And so when we pray and we submit our wills to him, we're saying, I want what is happening in heaven to be happening here in my life, right? We want, to, we want this world to live and to be in a place where God is king and that it's his will over our will. And so I think the place that we end up today is just asking that, that question in our, in, our, in our own hearts, in our own lives, right? Like, do, do I want God's will for my life more than I want my will for my life? Do I trust him because he's my father, right? Do I believe that he's able to do it because he's the God of the heaven and the earth? If that's so, I'm going to worship him. And the way I'm going to show him that I'm going to worship him is by trusting him in those moments, right? Not my will, but your will be done. So here's how I want to wrap up um, the, the, the remaining couple of minutes that we have today. Um, I, want, uh, I want us to be able to get our journals out, okay? And I want us just to have a few minutes for us just to think about our lives, right? From what Ross talked about earlier about God's kingdom and bringing his kingdom here and do I want to be a citizen of his kingdom to this idea of your will over my will, right? All of that, right? I want us to think about that and ask the question, where do we need to lay down 
aspects of, of our will or our control and trust God's will. And then if you get through that question, because that's a pretty big question, um, that may take up all the time we have. But another question you could be thinking through would be this. How different would your prayer be if you prayed your will, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? Think about how different our prayers in our lives would be if we actually started praying that way and believing and trusting that God knows better than we do, right? But first, start out by that first question, right? What in my life do I need to lay down? What area of control? What is it that I am struggling to trust God in so that I can say that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done? Um, and so we're going to just take a couple minutes. Um, feel free to journal. Feel free to just pray and, and kind of submit that to God. Um, and then we're going to, then we'll wrap up with one more song here at the end. But let's take a few minutes and, and do that.